The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, I did want to say a little bit. Um, I know the name of our, our sangha is a little different. Bloom of the Present, Insight Meditation. And I just wanted to share the origin of that. Some of you may recognize it, but it comes from Thoreau. And from Walden, actually. And um, the sentence it comes from is, um, there were times when I could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment for any work of hand or head. So that quote in the, the longer passage that that's from has always been an inspiration to me, and as well as throw. I spent most of my adulthood actually in Massachusetts, not far from Walden Pond. Um, so today I'm going to... Uh, well, I actually have a name for this talk, and... The, the, the name is Wise versus Obsolete Intentions. So recently in our Sangha, I've been giving a number of talks related to wise view and wise intention and going in different directions as well with the whole Eightfold Path. And it's actually one of my, uh, maybe my favorite or one of my top favorite to- topics to, to talk about. And I'll, I think it'll become clear why that's so. The Buddha said, everything rests on the point of intention. Everything rests on the point of intention. And this is from a Chinese text, which was based on the Dhammapada, From intention springs the deed. From the deed springs the habit. From the habit grows the character. From the character develops destiny. So your destiny first arises with intention and wise view. So our entire practice, our entire life, but our entire practice comes out of our intention. And if you really um, understand and also embrace and commit yourself to the depth of wise view and wise intention, that will be enough to carry you through the whole practice. And I'm going to be pointing out through this talk the choices we have, the choice between wise intention and not so wise intention (laughs) over and over again and that is our part of our practice an important part of our practice is making that choice and we need to continually be returning to the wisdom of our intention and continually deepening and refining our understanding of it There's another Chinese proverb, which is one of my favorites. If you don't change your direction, you'll end up where you're headed. (laughs) So intention determines your direction. (laughs) And intention is really what guides our activity. It's what directs our choices. It fuels our reactivity. 
And it determines what karma, or you might think consequences, grow from the seeds of our actions. And without wise intention as your constant companion, you won't be able to practice effectively because you'll be mixing up your intentions for practice for things that actually aren't skillful. And you won't really be able to break through our conditioning, which is a huge part of what we're working with in practice, is all this rigid, contracted conditioning and we need to be, have the intention of actually breaking through it. So instead of practicing dharma, um, you might actually be practicing your neuroses. <laughs> and um, that's what we are pretty good at, is practicing our neuroses, and we get pretty good at our neuroses, our misunderstandings, our confusion, and so forth. So you also, I'm going to say a little bit about wise view, um, which is the, the, even the, the more basic foundation under wise intention, but um, you'll find that talking about intention is something that's kind of popular in our culture, different places. You'll hear about new, in new, what I'm calling new age approaches and certain leadership and business trainings. And it's often associated with manifesting what you want in different ways. Clarifying your intentions so you can get what you want. And there's some legitimacy to that, obviously. There's a connection. But what most of those approaches don't do that we find here as the foundation in Buddhist practice is they don't, most other approaches don't question the, the actual wisdom and usefulness and skillfulness of what we want. <laughs> And wise view is really an analysis of choosing that which actually leads to freedom instead of choosing that which leads to bondage. It really looks into where, if you act on your wanting, and there's all kinds of wanting, skillful and unskillful, if you act on your wanting, where will it take you? So in a a very basic sense, wise view means having an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And and kind of like what I just said, but in a little more detail, it's wise view is, part of wise view is having the ability, which we all have, but don't always engage in moment to moment, having the ability to discern moment by moment, and that's going to be one of the themes in this. It's happening moment by moment. It's not something you do once. It's not something you do in the future. It's something that's happening right now. Discerning what leads to more clarity, open-heartedness, peace, contentedness, connection, compassion, and ultimate freedom. Being able to discern what leads to those from what leads to more confusion, more distraction, more contraction, more judgment, more disconnection, more conflict, self-absorption, bondage, and all the 
variations of suffering that we go through. So wise view is, is, is in a way seeing that from moment to moment and wise intention is then having our actions reflect that. So if you aren't clear about wise view and wise intention, then please spend time every day reflecting on that. When you get up in the morning, periodically through the day. Another little thing I want to say is the difference between goals and intentions. Uh, Philip Moffat has written a number of things around this, which is helpful if you want to look them up. In our culture, the word goals and intentions are sometimes used interchangeably, but in this, the way we're using it here, and I think in a more correct understanding of the words, they're, they're not the same, related, but not the same. And one, there's a couple ways of explaining it. Um, I used to, when I lived in Massachusetts, um, I, uh, I was a sailor, <laughs> sailed around the Cape and Islands. And <clears throat> so using a sailing metaphor, any sailors here? <laughs> um, so the goal of where you're going, of course you can just sort of sail around for fun, but let's say you're trying to get to one of the islands, Cuddyhunk. Anybody know where Cuddyhunk is? <laughs> um, the goal would be your destination. An intention would be keeping the compass heading. Intention would be keeping the compass heading in the right direction all the time. So when you're sailing, well, there's all different kinds of equipment these days. <laughs> I was actually sailing pre-GPS and so forth. Um, when you're sailing, the, the winds, of course, the currents and everything is shifting you from side to side, in this way and that way, not necessarily in the direction you want to go. So, uh, similarly, <laughs> the currents of our habits and our conditioning are pushing us around. So, when you're sailing, you need to constantly be making adjustments, paying attention to where you're going, making those adjustments, remembering remembering what your direction is. And even in the fog, when you can't see, you can still, still sail in the right direction. You can still know what your heading is. Goals are in the future. Intention is right now. And again, intention is what determines what you actually do the direction of this moment, this moment. And in this moment, and I mean this moment, because there isn't another one, it determines whether you view this as an opportunity for awakening or for a moment of the same old, same old habitual reactivity. So we are always being motivated by our intentions, and they're always at work, conscious or unconscious. 
but do we always know which intentions are motivating us? And here's where our awareness, our mindfulness, really paying attention to how our mind and heart works, begins to reveal our choices. So too often, what is actually at the helm is what I call obsolete intentions. And I call them obsolete because they may have been useful at one time, but they're no longer actually helpful. And those are intentions that are based on outmoded, outdated worldviews. They're based on old habits. They're based on self-images learned early in life. They're based on our conditioning, in other words, various defenses and so forth. And much of the time we're actually being motivated, whether we know it or not, by those kinds of intentions. And there's a lot of, a whole variety of obsolete intentions, (laughs) probably endlessly, endless different variations, but they very frequently spring from a feeling of, in some way, of insufficiency or deficiency. Sometimes that's very obvious for some people, Often it's more buried, less obvious. And that insufficiency or deficiency is this perspective that sees oneself and the world as lacking. So lurking, and see if you can identify with any of these. Lurking is a perhaps a frequently arising sense of not being good enough. of not being enough, period, (laughs) of in some way being fundamentally flawed or inadequate. Does that ever come up for anyone? (laughs) So if you reflect on that, what kind of intentions would arise from that feeling? One could say that all that feeling, which feels very, can feel very real and deep, from a Buddhist perspective is misunderstanding is a kind of delusion. And so therefore it will lead to intentions and therefore actions that are actually not helpful. So this insufficiency, you know, without careful attention and wisdom, will tend to motivate us towards endlessly improving oneself. This idea that I'll finally get to a state of good enoughness, that I'll be loved, or I'll be successful, or I'll be safe, or I'll have what I want. Or it motivates us towards this insufficiency, towards a very strong habit of self-judgment and blame. Or perhaps towards actually feelings of shame, and therefore trying to hide the shame and any flaws we may feel we have. Again, does anyone relate to any of these possible (laughs) habits? And it can motivate us, despite what our spiritual ideals are, it can motivate us towards relentlessly trying to get what one feels you are lacking. And again, from a Buddhist perspective, you're not 
lacking. <laughs> and often what we think we're lacking is something, again, it may be, we may be conscious of this, but it also may be very subliminal. We're often feeling we're lacking love, we're lacking respect, we're lacking approval, we're lacking uh, success, we're lacking belonging. And all these, in, those, those intentions that arise out of that keep us perpetually busy and self-involved. Right? <laughs> we can spend our entire life in that, the busyness of self-improvement, of judging and all of that. Shame, trying to avoid shame. And it actually, as, as we're caught in those, it reinforces a, a condition of chronic dissatisfaction because there's no end and there's no actual cure <laughs> and there's no um, there's no place you'll get to a good enough place in a sense that you'll be think you're finished except maybe by spiritual awakening, but that's a whole different ballgame. So proving oneself, striving, being caught in ambition, and of course all of these enter into people's meditation practice and spiritual journey. They start to approach it in the same way, which will only undermine your practice in various ways. So I want to say, in generally, if you think meditation practice, dharma practice, mindfulness practice, however you articulate it, it feel at least at times feels really hard or it feels like a struggle, sort of like, yeah, or there's lots of shoulds, I should be doing it, I should be doing more, I'm not doing enough, um, it feels very effortful, there's resistance. And all of us feel that at different times. Sometimes it becomes the major way we relate to our practice, but often it's, it's at different times. If you're experiencing that, it's pretty likely that you're, what's happening is a conflict between your obsolete intentions and your wise intentions. And, and that your obsolete intentions in some ways are blocking your wise intentions. When wise intention is actually clear and dominant, practice becomes almost effortless. That's why the more we refine this, the, um, the easier it becomes. It takes energy, but the energy flows naturally. And that's what effortlessness really means. So caught in this agitation of our obsolete intentions, we forget the simple wisdom of our practice. We make it complicated, we get distracted, we are lost. The simple wisdom of our practice of learning to be aware right now, awake, aware, present. Our practice of greater self-awareness and understanding. Our practice of opening the heart, of responding to ourselves and others with a fundamental kindness. It's actually pretty basic and pretty simple. So on, in order to choose wise intentions, to make them in the forefront, to make them alive moment by moment, 
need to be able to clearly, internally anyways, articulate and know what those are, how you would say it and understand it for yourself. So I'm not going to ask for answers, but I'm, I'm inviting you right now. Can you fully articulate what your intention is in this moment? And in this moment, that relates to the next moment and the next and the next. So right now, in terms of the potentiality of freedom in this life, And I want to ask you now, too, to maybe carry this with you today in some way. So in your conversations today, how are you holding your wise intentions? So you drive on the freeways, which I will be doing soon. (laughs) How are you holding your wise intention as you engage in activities So do you seek, in this moment, to learn how to understand and untangle your patterns of suffering? And do you trust the possibility of unleashing the inner wellspring of love and compassion that is there? And do you wish to experience, to truly know, to truly be, the openness and ease, the spaciousness and freedom that is here. Not there, there is no there. (laughs) That is here. (laughs) Beyond the small box that we put ourselves in. Small box of the ideas of ourself. The small box of our conditioned patterns and habits and ideas. The small way we look at reality. So we need to apply, this is my message, (laughs) wise attention, intention, attention, and intention again and again, and mindfully identify what intentions are operating, and then choose again and again and again. Mindfully identify, get to know yourself, what intentions are motivating you, what are operating, what's pushing you. Is that skillful or unskillful? Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Is it wise or unwise? This is from Philip Moffat. Another way to comprehend the immediacy and attentive aspects of intention is to realize that you are always starting over in each moment. There is actually never any other opportunity. (laughs) And when you really understand this, freshness of practice, the freshness of life, the freshness of being awake, you can wholeheartedly begin again. And the rest of this quote is, therefore when you become lost or lazy or unskillful, it is not a sin or a disaster. You have simply lost your intention for a moment. So we can interrupt our patterns and our habits through wakefulness, awareness, and mindfulness for seeing what's really happening. And we can tune into and recall recall a deeper calling. 
that deeper calling to what is most, has most meaning, has most value in your life, in being human on this planet, a calling that goes beyond all the stories we tell ourselves, all the details of life, all the ideas we hold on to about who we think we are. And this calling to know what is true. And to do this over and over again until its presence, the presence of wise intention is always there or almost always there. And we practice to become unhooked from the old conditioning. Suzuki Roshi said something like, the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. This is something I tell my students all the time. (laughs) It's the short form of what are your wise intentions? (laughs) The most important thing is to remember the most important thing. So practice is not just remembering, come back to your breath, blah, 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 you know, all that. It's really remembering to return to the most important thing. And there are many ways to remind ourselves about what our deepest intentions are. And we come to teachings like this, to remind ourselves. We read or listen to audio. We reflect. Sangha. We create Sangha and community to help reflect each other and to mirror each other, to remind each other what's the most important thing. And we practice and we meditate every day. And our meditation, our daily meditation, is not just increasing awareness or mindfulness, although it does that. (laughs) It also represents the commitment to the most important thing. So I'll um, end with a poem by Rumi. Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As a fish out of water hears the surfs come back. This turning toward what you deeply love saves you. Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As a fish out of water hears the surfs come back. This turning toward what you deeply love saves you. So let's just spend a minute in silence and then there'll be a little time for comments or questions. So, um, so you have the mic, okay? Okay. Any comments or questions? Or I always like to hear comments, so I kind of know where a talk landed. <laughs> so.
question for me is how to avoid that the endless obsession with self-improvement and move to more wholesome intention. <laughs> well, one thing is to, to really see the um, futility of it. To really recognize the futility. And it's not that improving at things isn't, you know, is okay. You know, I like to learn things, get better, and so forth. But it's that improvement that I'm, I'm not enough now. I don't have what I need now to be awakened. That is the delusion. You have, enough, you have exactly what you need to be awakened right now. It's the issue of clearing the veil, so to speak. And this is one of the veils is our misunderstanding that it's sometime else, somewhere else. And, um, and I have to be someone else to actually <laughs> experience it. Um, and there's different ways to keep coming back to that. You know, it, it's, it's to really... The, the last talk I gave here was called Innate Awakening... And my point in that talk was just that, that, that the capacity for awakening is always here. It's not, it's not even something you have to develop. The only thing we need to do is remove the veils, the misunderstandings. So, um, and also, you know, in terms of that end of self-improvement, I mean, how has it worked out for you so far? <laughs> Isn't there always another thing? And, and how often do we... Sometimes we actually reach our goal, and then what happens? I don't know. We age. <laughs> we, we, our memory gets bad. Um, <laughs> whatever. We go through a difficult period and, and lose whatever it was for... We seem to lose what it was for a while. So, um, so those are a couple couple things, but I think the most fundamental is to really begin to know that the nature of awakening doesn't fit into our regular paradigms of accomplishment and um, fixing and um, attaining in a certain, or or, or what's the word I want, accumulating. (laughs) Um, It's not a matter of how do I say this of of merely if I do it enough I'll be rewarded with the end product it's really much more fundamental than that it's much more about how we how deeply we are in touch with the here and now. Simply that. Thank you. Yeah, other... Thank you for your talk. I'm, I'm not sure if I can articulate this very well, but um, I sometimes I think I... I um, the part of the earlier part of your talk, um, I confuse... For myself, I kind of confuse self-criticism with humility sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite is true, like... like I, can, I, I also confuse um, feeling good about myself or loving myself with uh, being very egotistical. And 
I don't want to be very egotistical, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, mm -hmm. the greatest. I'm, you know, this lovely person, and and it it seems very um, uh, uncomfortable. And I know I'm not quite getting that right, mm -hmm. um, but it's almost like I can't quite see it how how to do it without feeling. You know how to have self-love without being this really annoying person that that, <laughs> <laughs> that I wouldn't want to be around, and I don't think others would want to be around. Yeah. And uh, any insight you could give would be appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I imagine there's two things going on: is is you might be getting caught in those different aspects or you might more just be in the confusion about what am I doing this or am I doing that is is this authentic humility or is this you know so um, one thing I'll say about humility um, actually it's just something I put on my on the bloom of the present website <laughs> this week and it said uh, something like um, we need a dynamic marriage of humility and confidence to proceed on the path. A dynamic marriage of humility and confidence. Confidence is um, a factor, is an important factor on the path. And we need the humility simply to know what we don't know. And that's not judgment. That's just knowing you know, what we don't know. And the confidence in our capacity for full awakening. And that's, again, going to be true for everybody. In other words, everybody is some place of not knowing. And everybody has the potentiality. And, and then to sort of say something about the second part of what you said, this, the um, self-esteem, self-love, and so forth. Um, In some areas, self-esteem is going out of fashion <laughs> because of its problematic qualities of what you're, you're talking about, um, that it actually kind of reinforces a, rig a rigid sense of self. And, um, and um, the, so what is, <laughs> what is more useful in, is self-compassion. And self-compassion, self-esteem is, is sort of I'm this, I'm that, I'm right. There's a lot of I'm in it, right? <laughs> and um, whereas self-compassion is merely the tender inner response of loving kindness when one is suffering. And so between that humility and that confidence that I mentioned... And the confidence, again, I want to emphasize this, it's not that you personally have this special capacity to awakening. We all have this special capacity. So there's that, and, and, and you add in that the self-compassion, which merely responds to the constant, frequent moments of difficulty and pain that we feel in life. And learning that is much more, I think, straightforward, actually. Not easy to do but more straightforward, because then when we get into self-love, we get into esteem. But this compassion for ourselves, and then that kind of overflows understanding everybody else is kind of, you know, stumbling through life with suffering and so forth. Um, there's been research done, and they found that people who score high in self-esteem versus people who score high in self-compassion... Um, 
in this study, <coughs> they found when confronted with certain difficulties or criticism, the people with self-esteem actually fell apart because their identity was tied into a self-image. Whereas people with self-compassion scored high in self-compassion, difficulty, threats, criticism came up, and they were able to just stay okay, you know, with it. So, that helpful? <laughs> That's, those are good questions, because they, both those questions really addressed some of the real basic meat of practice. We're actually out of time. So, um, again, thank you. Thank you all for coming and listening. And um, thanks, thank you to, well, to Gil to, for inviting me. And um, you have a wonderful center here. If you're in Santa Cruz, <laughs> look up bloomofthepresent.org and see what's happening there. So, um, just a little dedication and we'll be done for t- today. So may we all abide in wise view. May we all know the deepest, wisest intentions. And may we live our life according to these, so that for ourselves and for all beings, there is that possibility of freedom, of unconditional love, and of pure Peace.